Thank you for downloading the RJ Young Show podcast. This is the bookish section of the podcast, and I am joined by one of my best friends and the most bookish person I know outside of myself, which is really, I think, an indictment of me, Katie Mullins. Katie, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. How are you? I mean, it is what it is. It's July 10th, and, you know, the sports world is in the middle of another apocalypse. But other than that, I think I'm, I think I'm okay. I'm okay. All right. So, uh, we read Key Shot by Salman Rushdie, and we need to start by saying how long did it take us to learn that Key Shot was the French pronunciation of Kiyoti? Uh, yeah, it, I think I believe French, yeah. Um, well, so it depends on which one of us you ask. <laughs> right. Because right. I found it on page, I want to say somewhere between like 340 and 390, because that's the end of the book. Um, they There was a little pronunciation guide at the very end. However, RJ. <laughs> I, uh, I read the introduction. So, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's right up there up front. And because I was I was saying like everybody else, Kishoti, right? And it's like, no, it's Keyshot. And then uh, if you go to the wiki page, you can see like the pronunciation right there is Keyshot French. And I love this description, so I'm going to read it aloud. It is his 14th novel, Hate You, published on tw- the 29th of August 2019. So it's a very new book. Uh, and it's really, I mean, an outstanding piece of metafiction. Mm-hmm. And I love that, right? Because as metafiction tells the story of an adult Indian American who, a man who travels across America in pursuit of a celebrity television host with whom he has become obsessed. Of course, this book was shortlisted for the 2019 Booker Prize because one of the things that I am learning about Katie and I, uh, we are book snobs. Like, if it ain't a finalist for, for a, one of the biggest book awards ever, we don't want it. <laughs> like, I was... <laughs> Um, no, like I, I was trying to read this book because you, it was on your bookshelf and I went through this state of quarantine where I was pumped out like 18 books in like four weeks. And in the middle of it, I'm looking around going, I'm not sure if I'm misreading this book or if this book is just too dense for me. Because, you know, like, this isn't my first go-round with, with Rushdie, who is, mm-hmm. you know, swinging a hammer when it comes to phrases and just styling on us in front of us. But also, a, a story within a story within a story. Yes. Which is a very difficult thing to accomplish on the page. And yet, I, th- I think he got it done, Right. He did, I think. Okay. And it's it's meta in a couple levels, right? It's a story within a story within a story, but at no point in time does he give you a roadmap. He kind of just jumps when he feels like it. it's like, cool, we're back in reality. And then, okay, we're back in the story within a story. And then we're kind of in the in-between layer for a couple minutes. And then we go back in. So he he definitely makes you work for it, not only, as you said, in terms of the, the density of the phrasing. And it is very, very dense. But you have to kind of keep a mental like a mental log of what is happening in each layer of story as you move through. And knowing that you're doing two things. You're, you are floored by how good Rushdie is sentence to sentence. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you're going, 
how are you keeping track of all of this? Because right. it, it, I mean, it, it's obviously a flex to rewrite one of the great novels of all time mm-hmm. and to say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good at this. And Rushdie is the dude who would say to everybody, if you're going to write a book, it better be a really, really good book because there are already too many books. And I'm going, yo, man, you just rewrote a book that already exists. And he's like, yes, <laughs> but watch this. See this? This is called finalist list, shortlisted, man Booker right. Prize. Have some. I'm going. Well, Damn it! He, also, he, he really accomplishes an incredible feat, right? In that he is retelling the story, but he's not retelling the story in any way that is like the original story is, is a commentary, right? But it's like a very removed commentary from present day. And Salman Rushdie does not let you off the hook with this retelling. It's not it's not a retelling of older times or of a different country or a different. He is he is dead on, one hundred percent plunged into Trump land. And you cannot escape it for the entirety of the novel, which is a bold feat right now, especially given that it's it's taking a, a classic and putting it in a time that almost feels like we're lacking a lot of substance to begin with. Yeah, man. And then knowing that and knowing doesn't let you off the hook, I guess it's an <laughs> exercise in how how far out there can he go? Because when I started to go, OK, hold on is when the elephant started to appear in New Jersey. When did you have that moment? <laughs> um, I So I had it a little bit earlier, and I kind of dismissed it. Uh, so Sancho, who is Keyshot's uh, son, is a figment of his imagination up until a moment when it is not clear how, but he kind of miraculously becomes a corporeal being, tied still to Keyshot in some sort of weird metaphysical way where if they get too far apart, he begins to lose his his corporeal state, but up until those moments, he is still very able to be um, present and recognized in society. So my first little alarm bell was when he showed up and people started being able to see him. I was like, what? Um, The second, of course, was when the elephant plunged in. And I, I kind of had to look at the back cover of the book to make sure I hadn't picked up something else by mistake. (laughs) (laughs) So from there, we get even weirder. So I kind of want to jump to the end. How do you feel like this ended? Do you think this ended well? I have very mixed feelings about the end, Um, which is not to say that I don't think it ended well. I think it ended in the only way it possibly could have. And I'm very angry that that's how he set it up. Uh, Just because I think that, I think that to do anything. So again, you know, spoiler alert for listeners, but he, essentially he merges these timelines. So he has his, his meta writer who goes by the name of brother, who is writing this novel, which is like a, a fictional semi-autobiographical novel of Keyshot. Um, and then of course you have within that narrative, the person who then becomes Keyshot, who then is on his own adventure anyway. And so at the very, the very end, the way that he ties this up is that he has Keyshot essentially merge into the novel writer's timeline. Um, I think that given that he set up this kind of double slash triple, like two and a half point, two and a half layers of, of uh, depth, I think that it was the only way he could resolve it is to kind of bring those in a nice little bow tie at the end. That being said, I don't know if I like it, which is different from being impressed by it. I'm impressed, but personally, I'm not sure I like it. This is interesting because, you know, the last time that you and I uh, were able to to do book club, we were talking about the end of Ann Patchett's uh, novel, and I didn't like it. 
and <laughs> and you were like, no, this is good. This this mm-hmm. this is good. So this is also even more interesting because I'm like, of course somebody walks through a door and closes the loop in the story. Of course they do. Right. And I didn't see another way to go there. I think that's the reason why I liked it is because you left us with only one possible ending, which I think mm-hmm. is a sign of a good ending. I agree. I think it is good. I think that it's absolutely necessary. I think that given the the trajectory that he sets this on at the beginning, um, which again for readers, like the, the timeline start to converge as you're reading. It starts as a writer writing his novel. And as, as it goes through and as you jump back and forth between the novel within the novel and the narrator, um, or I should say the protagonist, it, it begins to converge. And so it does make sense that it would ultimately lead to this point at the end where the, the two worlds that exist in this book actually touch. I, I think I just have, I have reservations about it because I feel like there were other commentaries that he made that I feel like almost get lost when it's oh. brought about this way. I don't have a fully formed thought on that yet. So we'll have to swing back to that. But I feel like my my personal preference of not liking it going that way is much less due to critique of the skill. I think the skill is phenomenal. And, you know, how, the, how, how in God's name did he do that? But I don't know if I approve of it in terms of what the rest of the book was accomplishing. Hmm. So the ending takes away from the other aspects of the book that you believe that other people should or that people should be focused on. Potentially. Again, this isn't a fully formed thought yet, so I might you might actually talk me out of it as we continue this podcast. But right now, that's where I am sitting. I think my only problem with the novel is also um, part of the vertebrae of the novel, which is I think it can be an unfair criticism, but I'm going to say it anyway. The obsessive nature of our protagonist and his pursuit of his woman is really just too much for me because he is stalking her. It is predatory. And yes, while that is also part of Quixote's story, it's not it's, it doesn't play well in present day. Because the way that this would actually go is she would never actually entertain this man. And then he gave her a drug problem to force a meet. I'm not I'm not sure what to make of all of that. Because, yeah, you're in Trump land. But also, are you in Trump land in such a way that a woman that has accomplished more on the face of the earth than most people will ever dream about also inherits a drug problem where she has to befriend her stalker? This is why I love doing these podcasts because I, I, so I agree and disagree. Um, I completely agree with you about the fact that they would not have met, that there are very few worlds in which they would have met. And I think that the drug problem was a a fairly transparent device to force a meeting in a way that I think was not as creative as I would expect from Rushdie. Um, Because you could see it coming a mile away, right? It's like the moment that he planted that, it was like, oh, this is how it's going to happen. She's addicted. She's going to have to meet him because he's going to be the one who has the drugs that she needs okay got it um however i do really like his obsession and i think that i i really like so a couple reasons why one is because i think that um as it says somewhere in the narrative his obsession moves away from the the woman itself and becomes entirely fiction in his head you know she doesn't he doesn't know her at all he doesn't know who she is off of screen and yet he makes up these fantasies that are are so far removed from real life that 
it's I think it's very enjoyable to kind of watch this character spin that in that way because I wouldn't necessarily expect it. Um, I also think that his obsession speaks to kind of a like a culture that we have with treating treating television as not just a form of entertainment anymore, but as a form of our reality. Like I think that his obsession speaks on a lot of different levels to kind of the conceptual ways in which we currently approach everything from reality television to media and news outlets. And I think that it's a really effective way to do that by having him fixate on this woman um, who's kind of the Oprah of this world, so to speak, um, or at least as known as someone like Oprah would be. I think that that's really effective. And it is because I was really into her story, right? And I'm really into figuring out how she got where she she is and her family because like uh just just her parents i thought were so awesomely uh complicated and yes. and i wanted that novel like i wanted that story even if it's just built around her that's okay and every time we go back to our protagonist or we go back to brother I am let down and I'm going, all right, I'm reading through this so I can get back to her because I thought she was the most compelling part of this entire thing because of all of this stuff is circulating her. And yet I'm also looking at her mom who is terminally ill and her father who's achieved much in life. And yet this woman is the center of everything he does and forever will be. And that felt genuine. Like that felt Mm -hmm. perfect in a way that the pursuit of, uh, you know, Oprah is not. <laughs> I see. That's where I think we, I don't know if I agree that the pursuit of her is not like, I think, I think this is a thing that we, we see in, um, in modern society. And so if I can go on like a personal anecdote for a second, one of the things that I, I noticed when this quarantine started and when I was conducting basically everything from the screen of my computer was that I started to feel like my reality was getting a little shifty. Cause it's like everywhere that I, you know, every show that I would watch online or every video clip was in the same exact little box as every social interaction I was having while I was quarantined, you know, every zoom call and every Skype meeting and every, whatever else was happening was all coming from the same place. And I found myself getting into a zone of really struggling to differentiate, like what is, again, this is pure quarantine, but like what actually happened versus what, what was it that I just watched that, you know, that gave me some, some sort of thing to think about? Like, what did it, was this a conversation I had or did it come out of a movie? Um, and I, I, that blend of course is because I wasn't out in the world, but and still I'm not, but I wonder, I feel like it's not too far off. If you're someone who your entire world is essentially an internal, you know, watching television, absorbing news, which is, he shot he's on this road trip but the only interactions that he really genuinely has are with his own television screen where he just takes in reality tv and in that way i begin to wonder like i think i think there is a a grounds to this sort of obsessive thinking i think that it's it's something that i i imagine is not all that uncommon for celebrities and i really like the way that uh that Rushdie handles it in terms of making it essentially Keyshot's reality. You know, TV is more real to him than anything that actually happens around him. And that's translated by this relationship that he thinks he has that he actually doesn't. I thought that that was actually a really cool maneuver, for lack of a better description of it. It's also so intensely autobiographical, too. And I was trying to wait till I got to this point, but I have to bring it up in that, <laughs> you know, Rushdie wins the Booker Prize 
I believe in 1981 for Midnight's Children. And that sold hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of copies. But the thing that actually makes him famous is the satanic verses because the Ayatollah run says, okay, cool, fatwa, which for those of you who don't know means assassinate this man. So mm-hmm. Rushdie goes into hiding. And in going into the hiding, you know, late 80s, early 90s, I want to say it's like 89, he's intensely watching a lot of television and not going out and reading a ton, I would believe, and then writing down his thoughts. But also the cerebral, goofy nature of it, I think, is also reflective of quarantine, to pick up on your point. And the idea of him having sat down to write through this, I also think, you know, his wife's got to feel some kind of way because... Hey, are you, this is this isn't me. Who are you writing about? And now I want right. now I want to know who he's writing <laughs> about too, because uh, Salma R. I think is also his like his wife's name. I think I got that right. Uh, I'll check it. Okay, so like I'm I'm pulling a lot of this out of my own memory, and I, that's that's on me. But all to say, he's trying to write about himself in a way that I don't think that he's ever tried to write about himself. And I don't think he's ever been interested in himself. And that's interesting to me because I think we live in an age of opinion where our generation is is bad at writing opinion, in large part because we rely on the word I to make our points, which is a great way <laughs> to undermine your argument and a great way for everybody to throw your argument out. Because even your most intensely stupid or intensely hateful idea might actually be, have some bearing in an intellectual discourse if you can refrain from making it about you. And I think this is his attempt to do that, hiding behind mm-hmm. one of the great novels of all time, which you got to say is 100% just genius. And I think that's why I like this thing. Interesting. I actually hadn't thought of that before, but it it doesn't... It makes sense. It does make sense. Also, I did look. His wife's name is Padma, which makes sense because that's actually who the narrator is talking to in Midnight's Children. Um, I believe it's Midnight's Children. I don't think it's Satanic Verses. Okay. Uh, I Yeah. I also – so one thing I want to shift into, if you're okay with yeah, yeah, following please. my pivot here. Um, so we both, we both went and heard him speak, correct? Yes. Yeah. So one of the things – we heard him speak in Tulsa, and one of the things that he said in his talk that I – will absolutely never forget as he talks a lot about humor in his writing. So he talks about how he, he feels like anytime you can get somebody to laugh, that you stand a much better chance of being able to make your point with them and, or have them, you know, be like receptive to what you are offering them or what you wish to share with them, which I think is very valid. Um, my experience is similar in that, you know, like humor is something that if when people are being funny, I'm much more inclined to want to, participate and listen to what it is that they're saying. And if you read Midnight's Children, of course, it's it's a very serious book that is genuinely very funny. This book, he said, was also intended to be very funny. And I, I find that fascinating because I found this book to be, like I found the moments that I think were intended to be humor to actually be really crushing. Things that, that Quichotte do or that uh, Quichotte, whoops, or that Sancho do that are, are strange or are kind of uncouth maybe should we say they're supposed to be funny there are moments in here that i can see he thought were funny i found this book heartbreaking and so i wonder i wonder what your reaction is to that as far as the attempted humor in this book versus the actual impact uh 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I can see that. I mean, we're dealing with racism, opioid crisis, Brexit, uh, gun control, mm-hmm. immigration, assisted suicide, fraud on like a corporate level, mm-hmm. uh, the existence or non-existence of God. I think Sec- the only thing he doesn't cover here is yeah. Uh, I mean, I think cyber terrorism is the pandemic. In yeah, cyber terrorism is in there too. So like, yeah. yeah, and shame on me for forgetting this one. Sexual abuse is right there. Yeah. So no, I can totally see that, especially when you, anytime you need to have Jiminy Cricket pop up, you've <laughs> gone you've gone too far. You know, yeah. like that's no, I I get that, and I'm also in this space where I try to meet tragedy and depression and in intense uh self-hate and self-loathing with humor which i think is you know uh, people would most uh identify with comics right and comedy Mm -hmm. and i think that's why he says this is an attempt to be funny in some spaces and you know even an attempt at parody if we're talking about the entire thing as it relates to coyote but anything that is going to be this dark has to be funny. I mean, I, I lean on Josh Whedon when he talks about the Avengers and how he basically gave Marvel its sauce and saying, yes, make it dark, make it real, make it horrifying. But for the love of God, tell a joke. And you get right. that, right? You get that everywhere you're going. I mean, I think about how Infinity War and Endgame pushed everybody in the Marvel Universe, at least, to the brink. I mean, you watched people die. You watched a tyrant win, and you watched him brutally destroy people that you and characters that you have spent a dozen years getting to know across like 22 movies. Right. And, and they managed to pull that off with intermittent humor throughout the way. And I think that anybody that can tell a good joke also knows what it means to be in intense pain. And if you can't tell a joke, that's because you've actually never had any pain in your life. And who can tell us more about pain in his life than Salman Rushdie, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I get that. No, I'm, I'm with that. It is intensely sad. And I think that's also a sobering look at something that's intensely sad. But this also fits right in with the, the surrealism I associate with Jonathan Franzen's work, that I associate with Zadie Smith's work, that I associate with Richard Powers' work, right? In a way that I would never get this far with Ann Patchett who doesn't strive mm-hmm. to tell you a joke, but she's also very cool, and I mean cool as in temperature, in the way she delivers the story. Hers sneaks up on you. His is fiery and yelling at you. This is where we're going. You, right. all, you all of a sudden end up at a place where you look around and you go, how did I get here when you read mm-hmm. her work? And I think that's also uh, in Colson Whitehead's work, because the jokes for him are acerbic, right? They are one-liners in that he is making a joke about you, reader, not about his characters. He's making a joke right. about society and how you live in it. Whereas Rushdie is, seems to be content to make fun of himself. Or at the very least, allow you to participate in laughing at what he's laughing at. Which I associate with writing. Like, uh, it was so cool for me to hear Michael Lewis say, you know, I... I write to a playlist, and apparently all I'm doing is laughing. I don't think I'm laughing, but apparently my my children and my wife will say whenever they open the door to my office, they hear me loudly cackling, which is 
you know, it makes sense because I'm pleased with my work. And we all feel really good about the stuff that we look at it and we wrote it and we're like, that's really good. And I do that. But that also comes from having done the work, right? Like I work in journalism and and even in my fiction, there's a lot of research. So if I've done the work to tell the story, the writing is fun. And I get the sense from Rushdie's work that the writing is always fun, even as he would tell you that inspiration is nonsense. And I'm like, yeah, yes. But, you know, in the same way that luck is nonsense, you, you work hard so that you can get lucky. You don't get lucky unless you work. So, like, he's right and he's wrong. That's just me, though. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I think your comparisons to the other authors you listed are are dead on. I think the only one I would add would be um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I'm thinking about his, he's not nearly entertaining in terms of like humor but he does use this kind of magical realism um like absurdist way of thinking to describe very real things in a way that kind of removes some of the pressure right like he i mean he writes about um a fictional place but he's making commentary of course on the trials that have happened in different parts of latin america and he you know he does like a really a really good job of balancing this let me be absurd to keep you able to stay with me while at the same time like basically just being brutal about here are all the things that are wrong right now and all the ways in which this this general part of the population has suffered and let me let me kind of lay it on you i perceive that to be very similar here like he rushy really plugs into kind of the absurdity of he, he doesn't have to create it right it's, it's already there for him the absurdity of of our current political situation and our current like the, the sorts of things that are even on the news or that are on reality TV or the sorts of things that we ingest on the regular and just accept as part of our, our reality when in, in rational terms, they never should be. And he kind of relies on that, I think, as his mechanism for humor, which, again, it's, it is funny, but it's also really crushing. And that's something I've, I've kind of had to reckon with as I've been going through this novel. Yeah, well, and I have been trying to draw lines to it in other parts of society, not not unlike you, and I think that's one thing that we do. But I was thinking about Roger Stone would love this book because mm. it does not ever apologize. It does not ever deny. It dies with the lie. It will continue to make it bigger and bigger and bigger, never thinking that this is untenable. Just thinking that, no, 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 attack. That's that's all we're doing. We're not retreating. We're not going backward. We are only going to attack this. And I think if you read it from that standpoint of expect this to continue to get bigger, it becomes a different novel for you to read because then your expectations are whatever happens next as opposed to whatever you've read of Salman Rushdie before. Right. So I, I, I thought that was interesting, but I'm also not necessarily – all in on that as an idea to make work. Like I kind of, I, I value judgment. <laughs> I value um, discerning figures. I really love to know that somebody thought about something and thought it through and that they, they really wrestled with the idea. Like uh, I've wanted to know for some time, you know, like uh, how often do my favorite writers get pushback on this thing that they're making not because you know editing is important but because their intuition on where the story needs to go or what needs to go in there or what doesn't need to go in there is often correct but it that also gets over, often gets oversold if you don't have anybody to put you on guardrails to say hey look 
I know you want to go down this mountain really, really fast and you want to go take this line, but if you take this line, you're likely to crash. And it's like, well, I'm willing to risk crashing. Well, I'm not. So (laughs) this is what we're going to do. Because, you know, uh, and I think that's why we share our work with with each other is not not at all to be like, look at me, but to say, hey, do I think I know what I think I know? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, if you're rusty, who tells you that now? Hmm. Yeah. 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 That's one of the things we talked about too, right? Is like the, Mm -hmm. I mean, oh my God, who edited this book? (laughs) Can you even imagine? (laughs) It's just, there's so many layers and there's so many parts. I think that, I mean, editing this would be a nightmare, but I also, right, this book, speaking of editing, this book breaks a lot of rules. It breaks a lot of kind of unspoken literary rules and it does them entirely for a purpose and entirely to the book's benefit. But that's a really hard to pull off i mean there are pages upon pages of of just you know certain characters going through and thinking for periods of time that the perspective changes within the metafiction multiple times there's moments where you're you're in a different there, there are moments where you're kind of thrown into something you're just expected to accept it as reality but then you know he kind of pads that with like things that are actually reality and so you have to you have to kind of let it slide because it's like yeah well you know, these elephants showing up is absurd, but like, frankly, honestly, so is the reality TV show he just described. So like, I guess I'm here for this, you know? And I, I just have to wonder how the process of working through this book could have even, even gone from the editorial perspective. How do you take this apart and determine what is allowed and what isn't allowed or what is functioning and what isn't functioning in a world that where the book breaks all the rules and yet is entirely successful? Yeah, I I think I would be very much interested to know who his editors have been over the over time and get to know those people because they're they're remarkable. Like I I think it's been said before, I need to say it again. Good editors almost are extinct because we don't teach editing. We teach writing. We teach mm-hmm. the creation of something. We don't teach anybody how to actually contribute to make this thing better. You know, and I, I worry about that, especially as I am all in on creating the thing and I am all out on editing the thing. I hate editing. Like I, I hate even editing my own stuff because when it's done, it's done to me. Right. It's it. Yes, I'm, I'm happy with this. Then you right. need somebody to ask good questions of the work that you've made to put up with your whining and yelling so that you can go in and make it better. And, and you know, like we we know those editors by name that contributed to the works of so many that we like. I mean, you, can you say Gordon Lish without actually knowing that that man put you through your paces? Or uh, I want to say Ann Lebowitz did this as well. Um, but like, if they picked you, you were good and you were golden because you'd be able to trust them in a way that mm-hmm. I don't think that we can we can really trust many other people to edit us now. And most of those folks that work in publishing probably have things to say about that, but they don't listen to this podcast, so I don't care. <laughs> so we're safe. Yeah. Yeah. So if I can pivot again, there are two other things that I kind of want to touch on um, before we close out, and they're very different. Um, one of which is the talking gun. I don't feel like we can end this, but if we don't touch on the fact that Rushdie puts a literal talking gun at the very end of his book with no warning, um, <laughs> in you know, uh, alongside a doomsday, doomsday plot and seven metaphorical valleys and a bunch of other stuff too, he kind of drops that in in those moments. So I, I want to hear your thoughts on that. I also, at some point um, down the road, there's a, uh, 
so there aren't many reviews of this book, right? Because it came out very recently and the world's been a very insane place since then. So there's not a whole lot in terms of literary criticism out about this. But there are a few critics that I found prior to this podcast that are saying that they think that because this book attempts to accomplish so much um, and because it is so rooted in the absurd that it actually fails to go deep enough on any one issue to make a true commentary. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. So start start with the gun first. Um, What are your thoughts on this, this talking gun that shows up at the end? I can see it because it's an, uh, it's an idea to talk about gun control, but it also doesn't have a white protagonist, so it doesn't work for me. And why, why I point out that it doesn't have a white protagonist and doesn't work for me is, you know, I, I wrote a book that has a lot to do with guns, and I'm very interested in gun control legislation and gun control as a, a form of journalism. And what we know is most suicides occur by firearm and then we know 74 percent of those are white guys to which to which i say you limit the number of guns or limit how people can get to a gun you can probably save more lives than you would like to as you're having this conversation about assisted suicide and his best way of trying to get to that argument was to make the gun be what the United States is masculine over the top without Mm -hmm. rationalization, uh, completely unreasonable and thinking the worst of you all the time. That's what I do with that, uh, with the gun. I didn't, I didn't like it being there either, but I could respect it as an attempt to get to where he was going. Probably should have had an editor ask, you know, better questions about why it was there and what's doing there. And is there a better place to put this? And to your point about trying to do too much, yeah, uh, I, to, I don't, I don't know that that's a that's a fair criticism. Once you know that this is an interpretation of Coyote, which is attempting to do too much, right? <laughs> like it's like if it didn't attempt to do too much, it wouldn't be a good representation or an attempt. It would suck. Like I would, I would pan it because no, no, no. This this is way more intense uh, or focused than anything that Cervantes put up. Is be, would be the only thing you could say about it, and then you get to throw it out. So I don't. I think that that's a criticism of somebody who didn't read Quixote, or at the very least, didn't read the Spark Notes about Quixote. Because I'm like, that, that, that yeah, that that one doesn't fit to me. I don't think that's a valid criticism. You can you can play that one out, but if you play that one out, you're just gonna come back around to okay. So you're telling me that Quixote sucks. I mean, like. Hmm. defend that one like like right right (laughs) so i i yeah that one i i I have i don't have as much of a hard time defending or rationalizing as i do uh the gun at the end of the story i guess my thinking on this because i i agree and disagree i'm kind of in i've got a foot in both worlds here um because i think that for the majority of the book i think that's an invalid criticism i think that even though Rusty is making you jump through hoop after hoop after hoop using, again, these metaphorical valleys and this uh, pharmaceutical scandal and this sexual abuse and, you know, all of the different pieces, like I follow him there because it, it all plugs into plot points in the story and it, it makes sense along the course of this road trip as we're interrupted periodically by Keyshot just watching, you know, tons and tons of television. Like I'm with him all the way up there, but I did begin to wonder... And it's only in the last hundred pages or so where suddenly we're hit with 
the TV starts talking directly to Keyshot, plus the doomsday plot that we're introduced to kind of, from my opinion, kind of out of nowhere. I didn't, I don't think there was a whole lot built in the beginning of the novel that led me to think that that was going to even begin to be a thing. Plus the talking gun, plus then we actually meet Salma R. And of course, you know, she ends up calling Keyshot for her, her opioids, like all of those pieces it felt like there was a little too much there. Like at the end of this novel was trying to show his mental decline and trying to make a commentary on the, the ways in which society kind of inevitably leads to these outcomes. And I'm, I'm here for all of those things, but I did wonder if he pushed it a little too far in those moments. And so that's why I was asking that, that question. Cause I do feel like, I just, I feel like it got dropped in without enough backing earlier in the story. There, there are things that I don't think are seeded in a way that show up later that I, I'm, I'm lukewarm on, especially for a book I very much respect. No, I, I, I think that's valid, you know, and it also invites you to reread it uh, later. And I don't think that I'm going to be able to do that. Like, I think that's the other criticism of this book is like, you're going to have to reread it to try to get at it. And when you reread it, you're going to try to have to reread it to get at it. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> Those sorts of books lose me, man, because then they don't allow me to actually have feelings of my own or right. to actually have a good read on the book, which also can defeat the purpose of reading, period. Uh, is there something else you wanted to touch on? Um, I think that covers all the things that I was wondering about okay. as far as, yeah, the pieces of this book. I think I think I'm tapped out there. Okay. Um, how about you? No, I'm, I'm good. Uh I'm glad that we got to talk about this, though, because I've been pregnant with opinions about this book for longer than I would like to admit, because I didn't think that I would keep thinking about this book in the way that I thought about it. But I think that it also has to do with It doesn't let you go. Down. Huh? Yeah. No, yeah, It doesn't no. let you go. Yeah. You really, and I, you know, I've done a little research, too, in terms of the, like, the reasons why he's picked some of the names in the book and the reasons why he picked some of the places that he has them stop on this this road trip that they're on. Um, and it's, you're right. It is, it's a dense book in the way that he makes you work for it. And he makes you work for it in more than one read, which I don't know if I have in me either. Mm -hmm. It's, it's such a dense book and there's so much to it that I feel like you could spend your entire life rereading this and still not fully have a full grasp on every single tiny piece of it, which is Rusty's style, but that doesn't make it more pleasant to think about because <laughs> it's too much. God, yes. That is Katie Mullins. Uh, follow her on Twitter and follow her through her journey as she is taking very cool pictures of D.C. and the surrounding areas. I'm having a lot of fun just living vicariously through you in one of the blackest cities in America. And, dude, it's about to get real over the next six months. So what are we reading next, do you know? What are we reading? Um, well, I have the novel An American Marriage, if you're interested in joining me on that. Okay. Um, Otherwise, I can send you a list of what's sitting on my to-read shelf, or you can do the same, and we'll we'll work through one of those. All right, let's let's go with American Marriage then. I got that on the shelf too. Uh, okay, cool. I know uh, Nickel Boys is also on the the list soon, so we'll do that one as well. Yeah, I mean, sh short read, short right. read, and and also not nearly as dense. Yes, not neither is American Marriage. It's okay. actually very easy to, i mean it's not as short as nickel boys but it's it is not yeah. <laughs> it's not the quite you know page to page capacity of rusty yeah man let you come out here with okay and now we're going to pivot to jeffrey eugenies and i'm going to be like no 
<laughs> yes. No. This one you can put a bookmark in and take a breath and you will not feel like you've lost everything. 